right, hello everyone and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast, ICU Ed like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I'm your host Eddie and I'm joined again by my co-host Todd. No trouble finding Todd today. In fact, it was me who has been hard to get a hold of because of summer travel plans and rearrange all our recording time, but the hope is, you know, I didn't impact our normal release schedule. As far as programming reminders, uh, we're getting ready for the critical care reviews meeting. I'm not getting ready. I'm not going. I don't think Todd, you're going either. I'm not. I think they've already announced what they're going to be talking about. 13 trials will be discussed, several of which we've already discussed, like Clover's about early fluids versus early pressors, 8ICU about haloperidol and delirium, and Team about early mobilization. Several of the trials are trauma, which I'm going to be interested to hear about, but we probably won't talk about here until we get around to a special trauma episode. But those include the Reboa trial, cryoprecipitate, and Procoag, which was about PCC use. We already mentioned we won't be in Belfast, but we do have a surprise for our listeners, so watch our feed over that June 14th weekend. You've been to this conference before, Todd. How is it? I heard it's fun. Yeah, it's a really good conference. The nice part about it is is that they present trials, but unlike a lot of other conferences, instead of presenting a trial for 10 minutes and then having five minutes of questions, they take their time. They present the trial over 20 to 30 minutes. They have a sort of invited editorialist that gives a 20 to 30 minute overview and kind of their interpretation and clinical interpretation of the trial results. And then they have some in-depth discussion about methodology and statistics and things that kind of help you to really, really, really dive into how you should interpret these trials. Uh, It's a great conference to go to. It's a ton of fun. There's a lot of really, really smart people there. And uh, Belfast is a great city. And I recommend that if people are thinking about going or it ever is an opportunity for folks that that they take that opportunity and go. So when is the the ICU Ed and Toddcast going to be the invited editorialist at Critical Care Reviews? Yeah, we're working on that. We're working on that. I've I've currently got a request in. We'll see what happens. I've also sent many requests, but, you know, they stopped responding to my emails. No listener feedback this time. I guess everyone is tired after ATS. American listeners have remarked that they also didn't know what RIA meant in the French trials, which makes me feel a little bit less uncultured. Wait, wait, we had some reader feedback, right? Didn't we have some feedback from the UK that said that patients are off? oftentimes not restrained in their ICUs and that restraints are relatively uncommon. You know, and and we talked a little bit about this when we talked about aid ICU and the level of restraints. Different countries, different hospitals obviously do their sedation and their care of these patients differently. Um, And so not totally surprised that someplace like the UK and Europe said, hey, we use fewer restraints, less restraints in our patients than maybe we do in the United States. Uh, Also brought up some differences in maybe uh, staffing ratios, which obviously would kind of go hand in hand with differential rates of restraint use and different uh, sedative protocols, which I think probably also kind of go hand in hand with restraint use. So, uh, you know, I think it tells us that people are listening, that uh, we try not to be U.S. centric when we can avoid it. But the environment that we practice in is in the United States, and that's the environment we know the best. And, you know, sometimes the things that we say will be uh, will be U.S. centric. Yeah, and that was feedback from James from the UK. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback, James. Appreciate it. Today, we're going to be talking about the PACER trial titled Platelet Transfusions Before CVC Placement in Patients with Thrombocytopenia, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, May 2023 by Van Barley et al. I can't wait for a Dutch listener to inform me I'm butchering all these names as well. Or where the acronym PACER came from, because I got the P with the platelets, and then I started looking for an A, and... I was sort of stuck. So I wonder if the trial actually just translates to platelet transfusions before CBC placement in patients with thrombocytopenia and may have slightly different 
name in the Dutch language. Yeah, I mean, I got the P. I got the P from platelets. You know, you could get the A, the a, from a platelets. in platelets. Yeah. You can get the C for central venous catheters, and then I, I actually really couldn't get the rest of the ER yeah. there. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. And if you're going to take the P from platelet and the A from platelet, shouldn't you take the L and just make it placer? Yeah, that's ex- that's exactly what I was going to say. Placer would have made more sense. And then pacer, like if you say the pacer trial, you're thinking about like some sort of electrophysiology, cardiology trial, like a pacemaker trial. Right? You probably think of that. I, with my, you know, well-conditioned working out physique, I think of some sort of running trial. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I What they, they called it actually, it was a randomized control trial on prophylactic platelet transfusion prior to central venous catheter placement in patients with thrombocytopenia. So that was the RCT-PPT-PCV-C-PPT. So lots of P's and T's, which yeah. is the death letters of podcast recording. Yeah, I think so. And the other death there is that I think there were exactly zero vowels in that acronym you just put forth. <laughs> Some background first, we place central venous catheters, which we may interchange here with central lines, not infrequently in the ICU. We're also not infrequently encountering thrombocytopenia, which may be related to critical illness that landed them in the ICU. In a procedure where you're puncturing a blood vessel, having low platelets would seem to matter, right? Yeah. The other thing I'd say, uh, I know it's not our practice, but I suspect that there are listeners out there who also place lines on the floor in hematology patients, uh, because many ICU clinicians also take part in a procedural service or, you know, they're, and we know this happens occasionally in our environment, but, or they're called to put a line in on the floor because they're the ones that have the experience and are asked to put the lines in. So I suspect that while one of these locations is the ICU, which is truly where we practice medicine, uh, the other location, the hematology floor, uh, might be a place where a lot of listeners actually do some of their practice also. Yeah. So the question here really is how many platelets are too few platelets? And I suppose an ancillary question that we may expand on in our discussion is in such a complicated pathway, which is coagulation, are platelets alone sufficient to monitor or intervene upon? I don't transfuse platelets routinely prior to central venous catheter placement for patients with platelet counts under 50,000, which as we've mentioned several times the intervention that we give for its benefits, but all interventions have their side effects. So what about you, Todd? What what makes you uncomfortable with platelets? Yeah, this is a little bit of a skewed view in that, you know, a lot of the lines you and I are putting in are pretty emergent lines. And, you know, the time to order and then deliver platelets before putting the line is not insignificant. And so, you know, your choice is, am I going to be careful and put this line in a patient who has a platelet count of 30,000 because they need it right now? Or am I going to wait an hour in order to give them platelets to try and decrease the risk? I do think that this trial is informative to help us understand what that risk really is and try and figure out what we want to do. But I'm like you, I don't usually transfuse somebody platelets specifically for the intent of trying to decrease the risk of bleeding when I'm putting in a line. Patients often will have a platelet count less than 10,000 or less than 20,000 in oozing, and I'm giving them platelets because of that. And then I put a line in them. But in as far as, hey, this patient needs a line and their platelet count is X less than 50,000, but X, do you want to give them platelets? I mean, the answer is almost always no in that situation. Yeah. And just going to the time to like do this safely, we don't routinely get type and screens on patients when they come into the hospital. So you have to wait that for that to result. And then also like there's some risks that we won't talk about later about giving platelet transfusions for patients who might be getting transplants or have transplants as far as the alloimmunization part of it. Yeah, I think that part of it, but I think, and this, we'll talk about this as we get into the results. I think there's risks even 
short of the alloy immunization, you know, there's risks of transfusion reactions and acute lung injury and that sort of stuff too. And while they're not huge risks, they're not zero. So let's just jump in. This was a non-inferiority trial design trial in 10 hospitals in the Netherlands of patients with platelet counts between 10,000 and 50,000 per cubic milliliters and the ICU or hematology ward planned to undergo a central venous catheter replacement procedure randomized to one transfusion of platelets versus not. It was unblinded though, quote, providers were blinded if possible, end quote. But before I get to the more specific inclusion exclusion criteria, Todd, what do I need to know about non-inferiority study designs? This opposed to the implicit superiority designs in normal trials? The non-inferiority designs, I think, are they're a little bit less common. And I think there's a couple of things that are important to know about them. One is, is that you always want to look at the non-inferiority boundary that the authors and investigators have set, because that's essentially the cutoff that they're saying, we're going to accept our intervention that we're studying being worse, as long as it's not more worse than whatever the boundary is. And so that's one thing to look at. The second thing to remember is, is that most mistakes in critical, in critical, sorry, in clinical trials by you towards the null. And so therefore, non-inferiority trials are biased to actually detecting non-inferiority because if you make mistakes like people aren't blinded or there's crossover, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you end up with less of a difference between the groups, i.e. more towards the groups look the same and they therefore appear to be more non-inferior or look more non-inferior. I always have a little bit of suspect when I look at non-inferiority trials and I always want to look at the non-inferiority boundary because sometimes uh, sometimes the boundary that people say that they're going to accept is a huge boundary that you and I would say, we're never going to accept that, right? They say, for example, we'll, we declare a 10% difference in mortality as our non-inferiority boundary. And you and I, if we were just chatting, we'd go a 10% absolute difference in mortality is a big number. Like, you know, that's if it was 9.5% and they go, see, it's not inferior. You and I would go, I'm not exactly sure that those are not inferior. So I always look at the boundary, look at the number, and then just remember that flaws in methodology tend to bias the results towards being similar in the two groups, which means that it's more likely to find a non-inferiority result. Yeah. So it's just really changing the frame of the study there. R- really? I spent like 10 minutes describing that and you summed it down to, yeah, it's just a different framing of the study. You need to blow all your hot air and then I'll just keep us moving, right? So yeah, perfect. The, the exclusion criteria are important here. It creates a pretty limited population for good reason. You are excluded for any receipt of therapeutic antiquity regulation, history of bleeding or clotting disorders, and INR greater than 1.5, which was changed to 3.0 based on emerging data after about two-thirds of the patients were enrolled. And so that takes out a lot of patients with cirrhosis and, you know, but it also didn't address ineffective platelets like for uremia. And- or antiplatelet agents, etc. Uh, the other thing, and maybe you're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I'm going to just jump ahead if you were. I think the inclusion, quote unquote, are important. And that is that the central line had to be being placed by ultrasound and the operator had to be really experienced, like greater than 50 central line placements, which is a fair amount of experience for for central lines. So, you know, we're not talking about trainees that are trying to get their fifth line being the operators in this study. And that's not who we're talking about this being necessarily applicable to. I feel like that really basically excludes a lot of trainees in general. 50 lines is a lot for internal medicine trainees in the, in the United States, 
a lot of them aren't getting to that number by the end of their training. Uh, and if you're talking about other specialties, I'm, I don't have all the insights into their training, but at least their early trainees are certainly excluded from this process. Yeah, completely, completely, completely agree. And as we get to the results, the other thing that I'll prompt myself to try and remember as we talk about is I think it's worth talking about the rates of bleeding that they find. And we'll get to that when we get to the results. But I think thinking about the rates of bleeding with the fact that these were all ultrasound guided lines placed by experienced operators is something we should keep in the back of our mind. I think ultrasound guided central line placement is the standard of care. And I appreciate them saying that. But we, as we talked about before, not a lot of people do subclavian lines with ultrasound. I do, but Todd, I don't think you do. No. The, the other thing I'd say is this, is the data for ultrasound guidance and central lines suggests that it decreases complications. Actually, I should say it's more than suggests that it decreases complications. It decreases complications with the suggestion that that's because you end up with fewer sticks. So you get the procedure in fewer sticks, which you would think would be important for decreasing bleeding rates. I don't actually know if those data extrapolate to subclavian lines or not. They probably should, but they may, maybe they don't. I don't know. The problem with some of that data for me is we always define, it's how you define sticks. And I think most people define that as the needle entering the skin, exiting the skin. Puncturing the skin. Yeah. But, but what really matters is it doesn't matter how many times you puncture the skin, right? It matters how many times you, how many times you puncture that vessel. Yeah. And so if you are going And blind, if you puncture it on the front side and the back side. Yeah. You're going through and through. Yeah. So that's what really matters. Yeah, and I sure. think that's one of the benefits of ultrasound sure. that you can see that. The other thing I'll hop into is, is that, and you, you brought it up, so I'm blaming you, you know, inclusion of subclavians in this study is interesting. It's traditionally a non-compressible site. Absolutely. You know, I think some people would say if you are thrombocytopenic and potentially at increased risk for bleeding, I may not choose a subclavian site because I can't hold pressure there to try and minimize the bleeding. So that's number one reason that I find the use of subclavians in this trial interesting. Number two is, is because the outcomes, the bleeding grade outcomes are partly based off of whether or not you held pressure for 20 minutes or not. It's hard to hold pressure on a subclavian line. So that also kind of is interesting. Having said that, I think inclusion of subclavian lines, and it's about a third of the lines in this, in this trial, the inclusion of that, I think, makes the results more generalizable you know, gives us more information on not just IJ and femoral lines in patients that are thrombocytopenic, but subclavian lines also. I'm not sure. I think I would argue the opposite. I think the inclusion of subclavian lines in which I probably wouldn't be doing it if I was concerned about bleeding at all waters down the groups that I am more interested in, right? So it decreases the power in the subgroups of the IJ and femoral lines, which are your traditionally compressible sites. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that you'd just be wrong. <laughs> uh, one piece of feedback that we did get uh, a couple months ago, but I was trying to find the right time to bring it up. And this, this is just to be a little bit clear. Todd and I had previously said when we were talking about the three sites trial that we, if we are the proceduralists, that both of us would prefer to do subclavian lines, all else being equal. However, in our unit, being at academic center, most of the lines that go in are IJs and femorals being the more comfortable line for the trainees at our institution. Yeah, I don't know what the percentage is at our institution in our unit, but it's probably, I'm just guessing, I'm guessing it's probably 75% IJ, 20% femoral, and 5% subclavian or something in that range. But Todd, you're 100% subclavian, right? Correct. 
100% subclavian with no ultrasound guidance. So we, we were a little bit off on a tangent. So let's get into their primary outcome. So their primary outcome was grade two to four bleeding by an adaptation of the common terminology criteria for adverse events. One thing, I will go into a little bit more detail on this outcome, but one thing I did want to bring up reading this outcome is that, you know, I had flashbacks to three sites, which was another central line complication article. In three sites, they also graded their outcome by the common terminology criteria. But looking into the specifics, the grades seem different enough that I'm not sure you can draw an apples to apples comparison there. So for example, grade two here is required minor intervention, like holding pressure for 20 minutes, where grade two and three sites was having an elective endoscopic or operational procedure. And that's also combined with interpreting the three sites outcome being a combined, quote, mechanical complication outcome rather than just bleeding, and that this trial enriched for a higher risk population. I'm not sure you can directly compare it to. Yeah, I'd call that comparison apples to crab apples. I started mentioning the grade, so I'll finish that out. So grade zero is no bleeding. Grade one was bleeding that required less than 20 minutes of compression to stop. Grade two was a minor intervention like greater than 20 minutes of compression. Grade three was an elective operative intervention or transfusion without hemodynamic instability. And grade four was everything else, which basically was hemorrhagic shock or death. It seems reasonable to me that they split out grade three and four as key secondary outcomes, which is really what I wanted to know. Yeah, I think that's important to know. I I think the grading is fine. You know, I think it's fairly objective and I think it helps us understand the degree of bleeding in each of the grades. I agree with you. I think grade four, you really want to know because those would be, you know, events that you really, really, really wanted to avoid at all costs. Grade three are sort of the, these make me nervous types events. Yeah, you had to, you had to do something, right? You've you had you needed another well, procedure to I think I would phrase that differently and I think this is important. You did something. Whether you had to or not, I think you could argue. Sure. But the provider, the operator probably, did something. And we had a little discussion before this about, you know, at what level does an adverse event occur where you and I intervene versus somebody who maybe is putting this line in on the floor who may not be as um, as used to monitoring the patients closely and saying, hey, there's a little bit of a hematoma there, just or, watch it. Or may not have the like the nursing capabilities and nursing ratios to feel comfortable monitoring them like yeah, we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the threshold to do something is a variable in this grading that is uncontrolled. Hopefully, if everything was done right, it at least is blinded and similar in the two groups, but still still may not be the same. I guess I should go even further than that, is not the same across providers within the study. The other thing I found interesting about this trial from a methodology and a statistical standpoint is, is that they use the one-sided alpha level of 0.05, which is a little bit uncommon. So typically it's two-sided alphas, right, Todd? Yeah, correct. The one-sided, I suspect here, comes from the fact that they're doing a non-inferiority trial, and that's okay but a one-sided alpha of 0.05 is a two-sided alpha of 0.1. And I think if they were going to say, we want to use a one-sided alpha, you and I in trial design would have used a one-sided alpha of 0.025 here and not 0.05. And alpha here translates to effectively what we would say the p-value of what level of p-value is significant. Correct. At what level are you going to declare them different? So with all that in mind, we'll go in to see who they enrolled. So figure one is their consort. Uh, There's 411 catheter placements that underwent randomization. The same patient could be enrolled twice if it was more than 24 hours between placements. Let's talk about that really quickly. So I find that 
okay, I think, because their primary outcome is essentially done by 24 hours. They do have secondary outcomes that are lengths of stay, which obviously become really complicated if a patient is randomized into both group A and group B during their hospital stay. They'd wash out of their secondary outcome. Yeah, because they got two central lines and they got randomized for both. But I think as far as their primary outcome of grade two to four bleeding at 24 hours, right? You, As long as you're not getting that second line within 24 hours and that actually excluded you, then I think it's okay to include a patient twice if they got two separate procedures more than 24 hours. Right. It's just something that you have to keep in mind when looking at their secondary outcomes. Table two this time, because table one was a table explaining their primary outcome, which I appreciated. Uh, It's their baseline characteristics. The median age was 58. It was mostly female. The median BMI was 25. The median platelet count was exactly the same at 30,000 and the INR is 1.1. Most patients by a little bit were on the hematology ward just north of 55% and the remainder in the ICU. As far as site goes, it was 50% IJ or internal jugular, it was 38% subclavian and 12% femoral. Uh, I would add to that that any catheter type could be included and about one out of six catheters in this are dialysis catheters, which are a a larger diameter and uh, about 10% were tunneled catheters. Which I have to be honest with you, you and I don't place at the bedside. Um, no, I've I've placed tunnel catheters like in the OR setting when they were getting other procedures. But. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit different in our practice in the fact that we just aren't placing those kind of at the bedside. I guess there wasn't an exclusion for a patient on the floor who was going to like interventional radiology to get a tunneled catheter placed. They could have still been randomized, but in the ICU, at least at the bedside. I don't think many practices are placing tunneled catheters at the bedside. No, but effectively, if you're placing a tunneled catheter, the access of the vessel is still the same. Yeah, absolutely. It might, because you're creating a tract, you might be talking about that the hematoma size theoretically could be a little bit bigger because you've already dissected planes of fascia. But I mean, the... Bleeding or not bleeding shouldn't be impacted. I find it funny that Eddie says theoretically could be bigger because the trial actually tells you that the tunnel catheters had more bleeding. He's read the trial. He knows those results. And now he's acting like this is some brilliant idea that he came up with. Because I am brilliant. So their primary outcome of grade two or higher bleeding occurred in 4.8% of patients in the transfusion group and 11.9% of patients in the no transfusion group, which did not show non-inferiority. So removing the double negative, it showed inferiority of the no transfusion with an absolute risk difference of 7.1% and a relative risk of 2.45. This was robust through their sensitivity analyses, which included different statistical modeling types and a version that included only the first catheter for those who contributed multiple. They say the results were similar in a post hoc analysis of blinding status, but I don't know uh, how. Taking their about 100 placements that were denoted as unblinded, the confidence interval for relative risk is 0.38 to 12, which crosses one. It's also worth noting that they had no grade four complications, which are effectively the hemorrhagic shock or bleeding related death. Todd, you like to tell me that there's a couple of things you look for to see if you believe the intervention and the post-procedure platelet count and number of platelet transfusions were higher in the transfusion group that go along with, yeah, that they got an intervention. Yeah, I think uh, it was nice to see the the post-transfusion platelet counts. I need to take a step back, sorry. Not post-transfusion, it's post-central line placement. Platelet counts were higher in the transfuse group than in the non-transfuse group, which to me is just 
some more evidence that an intervention was actually done and that that intervention had an effect. It is a little bit interesting because I was laughing as I was reading it because, you know, a lot of the hematology patients that we see, we give lots and lots of platelets and it doesn't seem like the platelet count moves at all. But the platelet count in these patients in these patients actually did move. I, I want to take a little bit of a step back and I said we should talk about this when we talked about the results. A 5% grade 2 to 4 bleeding risk in the platelet in the transfusion group, which is the lower group. The other group had two and a half times that. They powered this study based off of a planned 1% grade two to four risk and a zero not having any grade three or four events, which, you know, you can always say I'm looking through the retroscope. But I think if you'd have come to me at the very beginning, I would have said, mm, it seems kind of optimistic to me that, you know, only one in a hundred patients is going to have something that you're, you have to hold pressure on for less than 20 minutes, right? That's grade two. And nobody's going to have anything that you have to hold pressure on for more than 20 minutes or do an intervent, another intervention in. I think they were a little optimistic in their planning, but I think this is good information. Even if you transfuse the patient and that's the practice that you're going to do, you're still going to see 5% of your patients that are going to have something that you've declared bleeding post-procedure. It may not bother you clinically if it's grade two, but it's something that, you know, is going to be detectable at least. They had an extended table one in their supplement that said, you know, only 3% of their patients had liver failure, and that's probably because of the INR cutoff. Only 16% of their patients had kidney failure. There's no note of their BUN there. Basically, every hematology ward patient, about 55% of total patients got their central line for chemotherapy. 15% of patients got it for dialysis. 20% of patients got it for pressors. And then 20% of the lines were considered catheter exchange. And then when you're talking about the characteristics of the procedure, which you had mentioned before about number of sticks, the median and interquartile range for the number of attempted punctures is one. So one stick with the interquartile range being one to one. Figure two is their effect modification, and I think this is worth looking at. There's a couple of things that jump out here. For the insertion site, which we've talked about, the benefit of transfusion was driven by the subclavian site, while the internal jugular site straddled one or no benefit. There's a trend towards benefit in the ICU location, but seems to be driven by the 55% of patients on the hematology ward. And then the analysis by platelet count seems to nicely stepwise favor transfusion as the platelet count goes down as you go from 50 K to 40K to 30K to 20K, and then oops, there seems to be a lack of benefit between 10 and 20K. Well, I mean, I think first of all, these sorts of subgroup analyses are always prone to being underpowered, being post hoc. At best, they're hypothesis generating, and they certainly are not, I don't think, the way to interpret the results of the study. The other thing I'd say is, is that, uh, you know, there's a previous trial in hematology malignancy patients looking at prophylactic platelet transfusions in patients that have platelet counts less than 10,000, not getting procedures, just they're in an ICU, they're critically ill, their platelet counts less than 10,000. Should we give them platelets prophylactically to try and prevent any bleeding, or should we just give them platelets when they're bleeding? That demonstrated that prophylactic platelets less than 10,000 did decrease minor bleeds, didn't decrease major bleeds in that study, but it did decrease minor bleeds. And I think from those data, many of us, regardless of whether we are doing a line or not, might be transfusing a patient who had platelet counts less than 10,000. And so I think it's a reasonable exclusion from them, but this may say, you know, even if their platelet count is less than 20,000, maybe it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, I think just to your to your first point, uh, when we're looking at these these forest plots, they're they're really interesting, especially when they do tell a nice story. But these are hypothesis generating, as you've taught me, and all these statements should start with "I wonder." And so, I, uh, for the ten thousand platelets thing, I wonder if there's a threshold where one unit isn't enough. Right. So if you're under 10,000 platelets or sorry, under 20,000 platelets, do you need two units of platelets to see the same impact on your bleeding? So that's one of the things that I wondered. The other thing I wonder is, is are these patients different? So are your hematology patients, your IC patients different? I think it's a fair point. I think the the patients that are enrolled from the ICU are likely different than the patients that are enrolled from the hematology ward, likely have different risks of bleeding. They likely have different disease processes. I think they might reasonably, I was trying to put an I wonder in there, but let me restart. I wonder if they might reasonably be thought of as two separate populations. But again, you know, I wonder at the beginning of that sentence, I think that's hypothesis generating. They didn't do a trial of just the ICU patients. They didn't do a trial of just hematology patients. They included them together. And so seeing them broken out in the subgroup makes you say, oh, I wonder if they're different. But I'm not sure I would take that away as a definitive answer from these results. No, I I certainly wouldn't. Uh, Do you want to get into that cost analysis? This is something that we haven't talked about at all yet on the podcast. Well, let let me take a step back before we do cost analysis and do the site. Because- If you believe in these subgroups and you want to do some I wonders, you have to say, well, I wonder if subclavians are different than IJs and femorals. And I think they might be, but I think they might be in how they have a grading of their risk of bleeding and how we grade their bleeds and that sort of stuff. So that's why I wonder if the subclavian site seems to have a signal here where the other sites have less of a signal here. And I wonder if it's just because you can't really compress the subclavian site. And if you're going to compress it, you might be doing it for longer than 20 minutes. And instead of compressing it, you might be giving platelets or doing something, you know, going going down a different route. There are lots of people who I've talked to after this who said, well, maybe we should just give transfusions for subclavians. I mean, I would argue if you're going to do that, then choose a different site. Yeah, right? maybe you shouldn't. If you're really worried about that, maybe you shouldn't be doing a subclavian in somebody who has a platelet count less than 50,000. Choose the IJ site. Yeah, I agree. Um I think think that's a reasonable takeaway. I think the subclavian site thing is interesting because though it's traditionally thought of as as a non-compressible site, if you're using ultrasound guidance, it really depends on how you're doing it, right? Because the place that you can see with the ultrasound is in theory, a compressible site. Now you could be, you could change the angle of your ultrasound to get under the clavicle to your non-compressible site. But when I'm accessing the vessel, at least I think that I'm accessing the vessel in a place that I could in theory compress. Yeah, I think... The literature would suggest that if you're doing an ultrasound-guided subclavian, you're probably not doing a subclavian. You're probably doing a brachiocephalic, which is a little bit lateral to where the subclavian starts, and you might be able to compress there. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment and a fair statement. I am interested in talking about this cost analysis. So they took the cost related to the transfusion and the bleeding events, uh, and then what they concluded was the costs were higher in the transfusion group, which was mostly related to their prophylactic platelet transfusions. Makes sense. You're giving them platelets. Their supplemental table S10 is really fascinating for this. I don't have too much to comment on the actual results of the analysis, but they had assigned it a dollar amount, and they used the dollar sign, so I'll assume they're talking about the U.S. dollar, to all interventions. So, for example, a gelatin sponge was $5, transexamic acid was $17.50, which, you know, seems a little bit low, um, especially low compared to if you're holding compression for 20 minutes, that costs $20? 
It's a potential second income opportunity for you, Eddie, is that you could put out there your services that you'll go around the hospital and just hold pressure at a dollar a minute. I feel like I would want to charge a little bit more than that. I mean, you I, can I only hold, charge what you're worth. <laughs> I hold pretty special pressure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, I think some of these, like the cost of the sponge and the transazemic acid, should be pretty objective, right? They should be able to just get that cost. Now, that, I suspect, is a cost to the hospital and not a cost to the patient, which might be why you think it's a little low. It's like cost versus charge. Correct. But like the 20 minutes of pressure, there. I mean, that cost clearly has to be just sort of arbitrarily made up, right? Like there's... I mean, unless they were somehow figuring who the most likely person to hold pressure was, how much they made, which was $60 an hour, and then saying, okay, it's a dollar a minute, and therefore that's the cost of holding pressure. But it seems much more uh, subjective and less objective to me than the hard material costs. Uh, maybe if this is cynical, but I feel like if you're doing this with American costs and charges, that you'd be tacking on three or four extra zeros to the end there. I think to me... What it really says is, is that the reason that you don't find the cost different, that much different between the two groups is because I'm not sure the outcomes were that much different between the two groups. The, the other thing that I found almost a little off-putting about all of this was, is that they kind of brush under the rug the fact that the platelet transfusion group had higher costs, $400 per patient, higher costs. Yeah, there were some costs post line placement in the other groups. But still, when you take everybody and you give them a cost, they incur a cost of platelet transfusions, then the cost in that group was overall higher. Uh, We talked briefly about this, but in table three, where they talk about the rate of platelet transfusions, they listed as 0.14 in the transfusion group. But I think that ignores the fact that everybody in that group already got one. So really the rate is 1.14 and not 0.14. Just because you're research question looked at what happened after you put the line in doesn't mean that the patient didn't incur risk, cost, all of that before the line was put in. And I think they're small numbers, but they may be real here in that there was one incidence of acute lung injury in the transfusion group and none in the non-transfusion group. And while we don't know this, right, it could be that that was an incidence of trolley because you would be at risk for that if you gave every single patient platelets. There was a longer length of ICU stay in the transfusion group, which overall I don't think was statistically significant, but you know, again, is this some of this alloimmunization? Is there something about giving people, patients transfusions that tease them up for some outcome that makes them stay longer? And I think those are real things. Again, we're in that area that you adequately described as, I wonder. But I wonder if that's some of what you're starting to see in that area. Yeah. So I think this discussion is fascinating and I think we've gone over most of the points. So uh, I'll ask you the question that I ask you in some form every episode. Are you going to change your practice here? Uh, Are you going to tell your house staff team, which, you know, is an interesting variation from the data at hand, because remember this trial is basically no early trainees to give platelets before their central line placement if they can. I don't, I don't think this changes my practice and I don't think it prompts me to give platelets for patients that have platelet counts less than 50,000 that I want to do a procedure in. As we talked about, usually the procedures are fairly urgent and emergent. And I don't think these data say you need to wait an hour or two hours or whatever it is in order to tee the patient up to get platelets before you put a line in. I do think it may make me think, hmm, I'm not sure I want to put a subclavian in somebody who has a platelet count of 20,000. But even then, I think this quantifies the risk and we know the risk. And even in those groups, they didn't see anybody that had hemorrhagic shock and or died. I think That's beneficial because 
you may have angst if the IJ is not a site and the femoral is not a site and you have to put a subclavian in one of these patients. But I think this says maybe that's not your preferred site, but it's probably okay to do it. We said this early on the podcast, but if I thought it was necessary to give someone platelets before doing my subclavian approach, I would be choosing something else. I would be choosing a different site there. I do think this may change your practice a little bit, Eddie. It may make you less likely to put lines in the hematology patients on the floor. (laughs) Todd is referring to that. At our institution, we don't actually do that. So uh, that's all we have for episode 12 of the ICU Ed and Todd cast. If you have any questions or you want to tell Todd that he got you know everything wrong, as always, uh, anything else that you want to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at the ICU Ed and Todd cast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on the social at ICU cast at Ed Chan, that's E-D-Q-I-A-N, and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd, again for your insights and thank you to the study teams for all their hard work. Thank you to Mike Gannon for the intro and outro music. Thank you to everyone listening and we'll see you next time. Let's go save some lives. Let's go save some lives. This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be considered as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.